Isaiah chapter 44, we shall begin to read at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man in it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, 
shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord... All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. And may God bless to us that reading from his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that by your spirit you would speak into our minds this evening so that our hearts might be warmed and our wills motivated for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in secondary five, studying for what was then called higher maths. The class had just been introduced to the mysteries of calculus, but we were making heavy weather of it because our teacher really was hopeless. Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? Towards the end of that first term, the teacher went off sick and a newly qualified teacher came in to replace him she immediately recognised we were floundering and set about bringing us up to speed. Something she said I've never forgotten. Her advice was, 
Don't try to understand calculus. Just follow the rules and understanding will come in due course. Don't try to understand calculus. Just follow the rules and understanding will come in due course. Well, for me anyway, that proved to be good advice. I went on to get a good grade in higher maths and felt confident enough to take maths as an outside subject at university. Don't try to understand calculus, just follow the rules and understanding will come in due course. I'd like to say something similar in relation to the passage we're looking at this evening. Don't expect to understand everything you read. Follow the things that are clear and at least a measure of understanding will come in due course. I'm not suggesting that biblical Christianity is in any way irrational. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our minds as well as with all our hearts, souls and strength. But God is infinite and eternal. His ways are past finding out. We can't expect to grasp everything about him with our, my, our tiny minds. I like the words of Isaac Watts. Where reason fails with all her powers, there faith prevails and love adores. As we've been studying this prophecy of Isaiah in recent weeks, We've seen how Isaiah, who lived in the middle of the 8th century BC, sought to prepare the people of Israel for challenges which would come their way some 200 years later, when the powerful Babylonians conquered their land, destroyed their temple, and carried many of them off to exile in faraway Babylon. As the people of God, the Israelites were devastated to find themselves in exile, far from the land God had given them as their own centuries before. Had God abandoned them? Was he powerless to do anything about their situation? Did he even care? The poignant words of Psalm 137 reflect their situation. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? These are poignant words. The prophet Isaiah wants the Israelites to know that they will go back to their own land and the temple will be restored. Why does Isaiah say that? Because God has not given up on his people. He's still personally committed to them. He's willing to forgive their sin. And he has the power to fulfill his promises and keep what he has said. Let me highlight four things we learn from this passage about God's purposes for his people. The first is 
that God's purposes can be tested. God's purposes can be tested. In verse 28 of chapter 44, God says through Isaiah, I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. The Lord is intimating that the person he will use to bring about the restoration of his people to their land and the rebuilding of Jerusalem is a man called Cyrus. Cyrus is predicted specifically by name, even though it will be many years before he appears on the scene. God is, as it were, putting his claim to guide the course of history to the test. If he can correctly predict the name of the man who will implement his purposes, what powerful evidence that will be that he is in control of events. What God predicted through Isaiah came to pass. In the 6th century BC, a man called Cyrus successfully conquered vast swathes of the known world, defeated the Babylonian Empire, and made his new Persian Empire the greatest empire the world had yet seen. After conquering Babylon, Cyrus unexpectedly issued an edict, as as Robin read earlier. This edict encouraged the Israelites to return to their land and rebuild the temple. Isaiah's prophecy passed the test. God had accurately foretold what would happen, down to the very name of the man who was central to his purposes. Nowadays, there's embarrassment about biblical prophecy in some quarters. Can we really believe that men like Isaiah could predict the future by the supernatural power of God? That's one reason why for well over a century now, many biblical scholars have suggested that the prophecy of Isaiah was written by more than one individual, with this section of the book probably written after the events to which it relates. But the Bible claims divine inspiration. When we looked at chapter 44 last week, we saw how God issues a challenge to other so-called gods. Let them declare what is to come, he says, and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old? And declared it. You see, false gods cannot predict the future, but the real God can. It's interesting that when the apostles began to preach the gospel, they stressed how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection had been foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Listen to Paul's summary of the gospel I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The apostles were convinced that Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament 
authenticated his identity and ministry. The purposes of God disclosed in the Old Testament regarding Jesus had been put to the test and they had been proved true. God's purposes can be tested. Secondly, God's purposes are surprising. God says some remarkable things about Cyrus here in chapter 45. In the final verses of chapter 44, he says of him that he is my shepherd, my anointed whose right hand I have grasped. It was kings of Israel who were normally described as shepherds of their people. It was kings of Israel who were normally described as God's anointed. And yet God applies these expressions to Cyrus. In verse 2 of chapter 45, he says he will go before Cyrus and grant him success. And in verses 5 and 6, he summons him by name, which suggested a degree of intimacy. Cyrus appears to be God's man. But we need to look a little more closely at the text. Look at verse 4. God says, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. And again, verse 5, I equip you, though you do not know me. I call you, I equip you, says God, though you do not know me. That's surprising, isn't it? Cyrus may be God's man, but he won't know him. He won't be in relationship with him. He won't acknowledge him as God. Cyrus will be God's instrument to fulfill his purposes, but he will remain an unbeliever. God will grant Cyrus military success and riches, but he won't belong to God's covenant family. God will use a pagan emperor to fulfill his purposes for his people. He will be behind Cyrus' rise and success, but Cyrus will remain a pagan. Even though he will carry out God's purposes, he will not be his follower. That's a striking example of the principle which the Lord spells out in verse 7 of our chapter. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is claiming to be in ultimate control of everything that happens. Nothing happens outside his sovereign control. And that even includes the actions of those who don't acknowledge him. Do you find that surprising? Shocking even? Well, let me try to put it in some sort of context. The fact God is in ultimate control doesn't mean he approves of everything that happens. The Bible makes clear that he hates sin. Nor is he responsible for it. James says in his epistle, Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And the fact God is in ultimate control doesn't mean human beings are reduced to the status of mere puppets. Our choices matter, and we're responsible for the choices we make. I don't understand how all that works. I've never met anyone who does. It's like fifth-year calculus. I don't understand how it all works. I can't. But I proceed on the basis of what is clear. I find the cross of Christ really helpful in this regard. That's the supreme example of God's being in ultimate control. At the cross, Satan and a hostile world did their very worst to the incarnate Son of God. They subjected him to a violent death. They snuffed out his life. But at the same time, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. At the cross, death and sin and Satan were being defeated. At one and the same time, no greater sin was ever perpetrated and no greater victory was ever achieved. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter roundly condemned his Jewish hearers for what they had done. This Jesus, he said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Jews and the Romans were responsible for what they'd done. And yet Peter could also say that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, God was in ultimate control. Even the wicked actions of his enemies were caught up in the fulfillment of his purposes. Open theism has become popular among some evangelical Christians in recent years. It's basically the idea that God doesn't know the future. God has to respond to events in pretty much the way we have to. A friend of mine was attracted by open theism and asked me to read a book and discuss it with him. Before our discussion got underway, my friend made an interesting admission. Of course, there must be some things God has planned in advance. The cross, for example. He was right to make that admission. He just didn't go far enough. Why stop at the cross? The God who was in ultimate control of the events surrounding the cross can equally well be in ultimate control of everything. I don't understand exactly how God can be in ultimate control, just as I didn't really understand how calculus worked. But as a Christian, I accept by faith what the Bible clearly teaches and seek to live in the light of that. For example, if God is in ultimate control, 
Nothing that happens catches him off guard, whether on the world stage or in my own personal experience. And that's something very comforting to know. God's purposes may at times be very surprising in our eyes, but we can trust that he knows what he's doing. God's purposes can be tested. God's purposes are surprising. Thirdly, God's purposes are irresistible. In verses 9 to 13, God defends his right to govern the world and its peoples as as if he expects his right to be challenged. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labour? The Lord is saying that it's ludicrous for anyone to question his right to do his will in his own way. How ludicrous would it be for the clay which the potter uses to wrest the initiative and criticise his handiwork? What right does anyone have to interfere in the decisions of a husband and wife? God points out that he is the creator of all things. Verse 12. I made the earth and created man in it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. As creator, God has the right to deal with his creation as he pleases. He made it and he deals with it in his own way. I may find that difficult to accept in some ways, but I have to follow what is clear. When I say God's purposes are irresistible, I don't mean that we cannot defy God. We can, of course we can. We can choose to wave our tiny fists in God's face. It's of the essence of sin that we refuse to go God's way and insist on in going our own way. But that's a futile gesture. We can no more get away with our defiance than a stream can flow uphill. God will have his way with or without our cooperation. He has the unquestionable right and ability to implement his purposes. It's in that sense his purposes are irresistible. God's purposes can be tested. God's purposes are surprising. God's purposes are irresistible. Fourthly, God's purposes are wonderful. The purposes to which the sublime poetry of this chapter refers embrace freedom for the Jewish exiles in Babylon and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But there are strong indications that God's purposes for Israel are even more wonderful than that. They involve blessing for the whole world. 
Look how in verse 17, the Lord speaks of Israel's enjoying everlasting salvation. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. In verse 25, we read, In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Return to their land would be wonderful. To see Jerusalem rebuilt, to see the temple rebuilt would be wonderful. But in these verses, God appears to hold out the prospect of much, much more. Then there are the the references to the universal acknowledgement of God. Look at what God says in verse 8. He will use Cyrus that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 14 speaks of Gentiles being converted to the faith of Israel. It paints a picture of Egyptians, Cushites and Sabaeans becoming willing captors of Israel because they recognize that the God of Israel is the true God. Surely they will say, God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. The chapter goes on to speak of a world in which the makers of idols will be confounded and the faith of Israel will be vindicated. The whole world will recognize that the God of Israel is unique. People will see that he is a righteous God and a savior, a God of absolute integrity who has no truck with sin, but who in mercy rescues lost people, even his enemies will be brought to recognize that. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? God's ultimate purpose in using Cyrus is to bring blessing not just to Israel, but to the whole world. As the faith of Israel finds its fulfillment in Jesus and spreads worldwide. As we draw to a close, let's focus on the invitation and promise in verses 22 and 23. Look with me, please, at these verses. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the invitation. Then there's the promise. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's a wonderful gospel invitation. It anticipates the time when God's family will not be largely restricted to one ethnic group, but will be a worldwide people. We are privileged to live in that time. The righteous Saviour God has come into our world in the person of his son Jesus. He offers salvation from sin and judgment to all who will turn and trust him. 
There's only one God and there's only one way to be saved. Jesus says to each of us this evening, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Have you responded to that invitation? Like every invitation, it carries an RSVP. That was the invitation the Lord used to bring to himself one of the best preachers who have ever lived. One Sunday in early January 1850, a 15-year-old lad was prevented from getting to his own church in Colchester because the snow was deep. He saw a small primitive Methodist chapel and decided just to go there. This is what he later wrote. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Look to Christ. When he had managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. That young man was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who went on to become minister of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Through his preaching and writing, countless others over the years have looked to Christ and been saved. 
And then there's a promise in verse 23. By myself I have sworn, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do these words sound familiar to you? They're echoed in a well-known passage in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul outlines the example of humility set by Jesus. And he writes, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul is making the point that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He went down, down, down. But as a reward, he was exalted. And one day, every knee will bow at his name and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Paul sees what God says here in Isaiah chapter 45, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Those who have recognized him as Savior in this world, those who have come to him for mercy, and those who have refused to acknowledge him and who will meet him as their judge. You see, in this promise is an implied warning. Everyone will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess. Not just those who know him as their saviour, but even his enemies who will be constrained to acknowledge his lordship. But by then it's too late to receive his mercy. God's purposes are wonderful. We live in a day when God's mercy is freely available. All we have to do, in the words of that poor, simple preacher, is to look to the Lord Jesus. To look and live. There's much about God's purposes which we find hard to understand. There's much that we cannot expect to understand. But what each of us needs to do is to follow what is clear and act on that. Are we living in the good of what we know? Let's pray. O oh Lord, we have touched on great mysteries this evening. And yet, there is so much in your word that is clear and we can accept it by faith. 
Lord, we pray that we may do so and that above everything else we may recognise that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and Saviour. May we come to him and find that salvation for which you made provision in the person of Cyrus. He was part of your plan to bring salvation to the entire world. Thank you that you are working your purposes out. Grant that we may have confidence in you and in your plans. For Jesus' sake. Amen.